Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 203. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy, great show lined up today. We've got the third part of the Jeffrey A. Lander story, Sultan of the Clouds, but we've also got a Josh Roseman story, and Josh, as you know, has done a few narrations for Starship Sova. He's breaking out, on. he's probably been writing longer than he's been narrating, but he's breaking out into the kind of the, the sales, you know, he's getting sales now, a story in Asimov's. So we've got a story by Josh Roseman as well, and a little interview. But I'll I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We've got our Morgan Saletta with his Everything. Then we have the main fiction, which is Josh Roseman's Bring on the Rain. Then we have a little interview with Josh, just to talk about that actual story and how he got sold and everything like that. Then we have the final part of The Sultan of the Clouds by Jeffrey A. Landis. What a show. Do hope you'll join me. <laughs> So before we get into the main show, just give you a little heads up. Something new has kicked off in, or relaunched, should I say, on Starship Sofa. If you come over to the Sofa Notes, yes, the Sofa Notes is back with us once more. It's a little bit different. In Well, it's totally different, to be quite honest. It's, just, it's not a news, science fiction, anything like that, roundtable discussion. It's just really a one-to-one with anyone who I kind of find interesting and who I want to kind of have a chat with. Be it in the science fiction, fantasy or horror fields, you know, in the kind of industry itself, or even further afield, you know. So adventurers, you know, scientists, thinkers, the likes. So it'll be encompass everything, you know, just... What I'm kind of what kind of gets me tickled and who I'd like to talk to that at that particular week. So do pop over. There'll be a link on the site or come over to Josh has what? 
Josh, what a lovely lad. And Dee, because Dee's done the fantastic graphics for it there, for the logo and everything. And then Josh has built the site up again for Sofa Noise. Got <laughs> round of applause to them two, two chaps. Honest to good, good lads. <laughs> so thank you very much, Josh and Dee. That's fantastic. So yes, Sofa Notes is back. Please pop over there and have a listen. I've snuck in the Alan Steele interview from a while ago. That's actually on one now. But the first of the new kind of batch of interviews is by, or is, a gentleman called Bruce Bethke. Now, does anybody know Bruce Bethke? Come on. I want to use science fiction affectionados out there to kind of just jump at the chance. I know who that is. Bruce Bethke was the guy who wrote the story. Who, which kind of gave a name to the cyberpunk movement. Cyberpunk. He wrote a story in 1980, and I interview Bruce and find out how he, you know, how he kind of got together and how he kind of did it. How, how, I mean, it's a great story about how he sold it and everything like that, you know, to the magazines and how he actually became this this name, this story became the kind of, the, I guess, the figurehead, you know, it pulled all together, you know, the, the Sterlings and the kind of Gibsons and everybody like that, you know, they had like a name to call it. So the interview is Bruce Spesky. So please come over and have a listen to Sofa Notes, the reinvigorated, relaunched Sofa Notes. I thank you. There's one last thing I forgot. Actually, forgot to mention. If you if you just care for a little announcement as well, Starship Sofa is again looking for help. We have, you know, the enhanced feed that's going on there. Shig, who does the enhanced feed, has had to pull out. So at the moment, the enhanced feed is on hiatus. Is anybody out there willing to kind of take on the role? Which, you know, Shig was fantastic. You know, every week, week in, week out, he did it. But, you know, things have come up in life and things change. Shig can't manage to actually, you know, complete his mission. (laughs) Sorry, Shig. But if anybody, you know, if anybody wants to kind of Code it up and put it in the enhanced feed. You, you obviously need an Apple Mac computer there. If anyone wants to do that, get in touch with us and we'll kind of set the ball rolling. But for the moment, the enhanced feeds is a bit of a no-go until someone steps up and actually takes on the role. So we'll get into our very own Morgan Saletta with his everything. Morgan, and just before, actually just before I hand over to Morgan, this guy is so busy at home and in kind of the real world. You know, Morgan, I really appreciate all you're doing. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything. This is Morgan Saletta. My last installment was a bit of a travelogue as I visited my hometown of San Francisco and then jetted off to Chicago and Notre Dame University for a conference. While there, I visited the Adler Planetarium and had the pleasure of meeting Larry Santoro and his wife, Tysilia. I also had the opportunity of seeing a real-life spaceship, the Gemini capsule. In fact, my original idea for this month's installment was to talk about science fiction and ecology, but I'll save that for another episode, because what with the final flight of the space shuttle and the end of an era and the beginning it seems, of the era of private space flight, I thought I'd dedicate this episode to the space shuttle and the men and women, alive and dead, who built and flew this most marvelous of machines. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Spacecraft in Science and Science Fiction. Science fiction aficionado or not, none of us have any difficulty in conjuring up a vision of a spacecraft from flying saucers popular ever since Kenneth Arnold's 1947 sighting to the perennial favorite, the Millennium Falcon, 
Members of my parents' generation all remember the Apollo missions and would at least recognize the sexy lines of the Soviet rockets like the Vostok 1, which took the first human to space, Yuri Gagarin. At the same time, they may have dreamed of interplanetary travel aboard the Discovery, featured in 2001, or interstellar discovery aboard the NCC-1701, the USS Enterprise. While my generation may have grown up with reruns of Star Trek and the next generation, we were, more than anything else, awed by Star Wars, its spacecraft and state-of-the-art special effects which dazzled us as young children. Star Wars is the first movie I remember seeing in a movie theater on a family outing to the Old Mill Shopping Center with my Grandpa Rex and Grandma Rita. I can still remember hiding my face in my hands when Darth Vader came aboard Princess Leia's consular ship and choked the rebel soldier. And of course, we were awed by the launch of the first space shuttle in 1981, and we can, most of us, remember where we were when the Challenger blew up. I'm not going to give you an exhaustive history of spacecraft real or imagined today, but what I will do is give you some highlights, historical and contemporary, real and imagined, but with a special focus on the artists, whether illustrators, painters, or filmmakers, who have shaped our vision of what spacecraft and space exploration are and will be. Today's installment, This is a Big Subject, will be the first of two parts, and I'll end roughly at the beginning of the space age and continue next time, next month, with the absolute plethora of spaceships real and imagined we have seen in the last 40 years of science and science fiction. Dreams of flying are as old, perhaps, as humanity itself. Indeed, who has not looked at the graceful flight of a bird and not dreamed of having wings himself? Whenever our hominid ancestors awoke from the long dream of the everlasting now with fully-fledged self-awareness, surely they did the same. Our mythology, distant echoes, perhaps, of these dreams, are full of tales of flying chariots, flying carpets, and other mysterious objects like Ezekiel's wheels within wheels. But the pseudo-scientific ramblings of the ancient astronaut and chariot of the goddess aside, none of these are descriptions of anything resembling a spacecraft such as we would actually picture one today. And don't be fooled by intellectually vapid documentaries like the History Channel's Ancient Astronauts, which I watched recently. All that talk about the Indian Vimanas being spaceships is pure hokum from a text supposedly revealed by mental channeling to an early 20th century mystic and discovered in 1952 by G. R. Josier. The Vimanas of the ancient Vedas are standard mythological fare, generally flying chariots pulled by animals and another resembling a cloud. Perhaps the earliest account of a spaceflight as such is a description of a voyage to the moon by a Syrian Greek of the name Lucian the Scoffer, or Lucianus of Samosata. In their book, Spacecraft in Fact and Fiction, Harry Harrison and Malcolm Edwards suggest that Lucian, whose hero flapped to the moon with an eagle wing on one arm and a vulture on the other, may be the spiritual father of science fiction flight. Certainly his assumption that the Earth's atmosphere extended to the lunar realm is one that was continued throughout the ages. Most early spacecraft were seen as aircraft of some sort or another, from balloons to chairs harnessed to birds. Lucian's second work of what Harrison and Edwards term primitive science fiction features an altogether more grandiose mode of propulsion. An entire ship is propelled to lunar adventure atop a waterspout of planetary proportions. I've previously mentioned Kepler's speculative work Somnium, 
which describes a dream voyage to the moon, published in 1634. Shortly thereafter, the Protestant bishop John Wilkins published a non-fiction work called A Discourse Concerning a New World, in which he discusses the manner by which we might engage and travel to other worlds, these being, one, by spirits or angels, two, by the help of fowls, three, by wings fixed immediately to the body, and four, by a flying chariot. Once again, the bishop imagined that such a voyage would be accomplished through the air. This idea, that space was filled with air, was a well-established idea in the West and followed Aristotle's principle that nature abhors a vacuum, and the idea that space above the terrestrial sphere was filled with the fifth element, ether, an idea Aristotle took from his teacher Plato. In the East, in China, however, some philosophers, such as Zhang Heng, suggested in the second century A.D. that space was both infinite and empty, both ideas which in the West were developed during the scientific revolution and are now part of the general public's worldview. So, because early spacecraft were conceived of as aircraft, there was no attempt to give them any means of protecting their passengers from the cold vacuum of space. And, curiously, though fireworks have been around since the second century B.C. in China, and were introduced to the West by the Mongols and Arabs in the early Middle Ages, it was not until 1649 that rockets were suggested as a means of propulsion to the moon. In Cyrano de Bergerac's comedic Voyage dans la Lune, or Voyage to the Moon. And it is not until the mid-1800s that we find a realistic spaceship design incorporating an air supply in the work of the American academic George Tucker, who penned a voyage to the moon under the name Joseph Adderley in 1827. Some of the various works of the 19th century which describe spacecraft of varying realism I have discussed in previous episodes, and so I will only briefly mention Percy Gregg's Across the Zodiac, which gave great attention to describing the airtight and insulated spacecraft, powered by the ever-popular anti-gravity, in this case a mysterious electric force known as apergy. It was not until the beginning of the last century that spacecraft became a real possibility and that imaginary spacecraft began resembling the true spacecraft that we have today. There are three men who are generally considered the fathers of spaceflight, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, Robert H. Goddard, and Hermann Orberth. Tsiolkovsky was a self-trained Russian scientist who anticipated much of the true nature of rockets and the space age. Not only did he suggest using multi-stage rockets powered by liquid fuels such as hydrogen and oxygen, but he also foresaw the need to create self-maintaining systems for life support using, for example, greenhouses, an idea which we still have not perfected, but which will undoubtedly be part of any future space colony. Robert Goddard, an American, was both a theoretical and a practical scientist and launched the world's first liquid-fueled rocket, which was a true predecessor of today's massive lift engines. I spoke of Hermann Orberth in my installment on space colonies. Orberth was a German scientist and visionary who inspired Fritz Lang's enormously popular Frau im Mond, or Girl in the Moon, and he designed a liquid-fueled rocket which was launched in 1930. He later worked for NASA under Vannevar von Braun, and was the only one of the three fathers of rocketry to live to see the moon landing. The 1930s was really the birth of the rocket age, and, not coincidentally, the beginning of science fiction's golden age. The pulp magazine Amazing Stories, edited by Hugo Gernsback, exploded on the scene in 1926, 
and influenced a generation of young scientists and science fiction fans alike, though there was scarce science in the science fiction that graced its pulpy pages. What there was, and in abundance, was action and adventure, by the likes of Edward Elmer Smith, Ph.D., known to generations of science fiction readers as Doc Smith. Amazing stories and writers like Doc Smith, while lacking certainly in certain literary aspects, nevertheless succeeded in taking science fiction boldly where no man has gone before, as it were, from the confines of the solar system's backyard, explored in home-built or jerry-rigged rocket ships, to the vast and glittery expanse of the galaxy, thanks to faster-than-light drives, which, at the stroke of a pen, put an X over Einstein's inconvenient equations. After all, why let a little physics get in the way when interstellar wars, conquest, and empire await? What amazing stories also had was brilliant cover art and illustrations. More than anyone else, it was Frank R. Paul who breathed life into the science fiction of the era, illustrating the covers for all of Gernsback's magazines in the 20s and 30s. His massive spacecraft, engaged in battles and other adventure or calamities, influenced generations of science fiction artists. Trained as a technical illustrator, Paul showed the world what the constructs of science fiction should look like, creating vast metropoli and oversized spaceships that looked solid, built, and real. There were many other master illustrators of this era. Hans Veselowski, known as Vesso, and Hubert Rogers are notable among them. If you like retro science fiction art, I highly, highly recommend that you take a jaunt over to David Zondi's Tales of Future Past at davidzondi.com. That's David, S-Z-O-N-D-Y, dot com. David has put together a true treasure trove of fantastic visions of the future. It would be difficult to overstate the importance of art and illustration to both the science and science fiction of spaceflight that was seeded at this time and continues to bear fruit today. I've spoken in my recent installments, Island in the Void, Space Habitats, about the artwork of Don Davis and Rick Gadis, whose illustrations of Bernal Spears, O'Neill Cylinders, and Stanford Tori captured my youthful imagination in the 70s and 80s. In the 1950s, the last decade of science fiction's golden age, there was one artist whose vision of spacecraft and space exploration captured the public imagination and showed the generation that was to witness the launch of Gagarin, the space race, and the moon landing what space travel would look like. That artist was Chesley Bonestell. In addition to painting highly realistic-looking images of rockets landing on the moon and debarking spacesuited astronauts, he designed the sets for the 1950 film Destination Moon, whose screenplay Robert Heinlein helped to write. George Powell, the director, went on to make When Worlds Collide, which Bonestell also worked on, and Bonestell illustrated Conquest of Space, which was written by Willie Ley, von Braun's associate, who, unlike Brown, left Germany when Hitler rose to power. Another font of vivid imagination regarding spaceships and space travel were comic books, such as Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon in the 1930s, both of which gave rise to films and captured the public imagination. In 1950s Britain, Dan Dare, a lean-faced, red-haired pilot, was the space hero of a generation, and his winged spaceship, Anastasia, carried him and his loyal crew throughout the solar system. In fact, Dan Dare has been resurrected many times since the 1950s, most recently by Virgin Comics in 2008. He was such a household name that he has also appeared in songs, such as Elton John's Dan Dare, Pilot of the Future, in 1975, 
as well as in the song Astronomy Domine by Pink Floyd in their first album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. But I want to end this first half of spacecraft, of science and science fiction, with probably the most famous and ubiquitous spaceship of them all, the Flying Saucer. Although frequently claimed to be represented in religious art or narratives by ufologists, and indeed there is a well-recorded mass sighting of disks and cylinders in the sky in Nuremberg in 1561, the flying saucer phenomenon as we know it today really began in 1947, on June the 24th specifically. Kenneth Arnold, an American businessman and pilot, was flying solo near Mount Rainier in Washington when, in the distance, he spotted a group of shining objects whizzing above the Cascade Mountains. According to Arnold, the objects were like pie pans and were the fastest thing he'd ever seen. It is now felt that the term flying saucer to describe the UFOs he saw, probably invented by an editor, but in any case, by June the 26th, newspapers began speaking of flying saucers, and these silvery UFOs entered the popular imagination never to leave, though it is undoubtedly most emblematic of 1950s science fiction, appearing in a host of mid-20th century films such as Plan B from Outer Space and The Day the Earth Stood Still. And so I'll leave you with a memory of Klaatu stepping out of his silver saucer in a shiny metallic spaceship, bearing a message of peace, misinterpreted of course, to the people of the Earth. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Pearson. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. In my next episode, I'll explore the science and science fiction of the space age and beyond, and I'll give you my top ten spaceships of all time. Until then, I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. There you go. Morgan, thank you so much. So we have our very own Josh Roseman, who is kind of actually, when you get a look at what Josh is doing around about the, the you know, kind of the internet and everything, kind of science fiction, he's quite a busy chap. You know, he, he does lots of kind of reviews for places, reviews for Escape Pod, he narrates over here. And, you know, and in his kind of, in the real world, he's, he's writing as well and selling to, you know, Asimov's as well. That's a, to get a sale, you know, I have a little chat with Josh after the interview, sorry, after the story, just, you know, and we talk about, you know, how, how it, it feels to sell a story, because especially in Asimov's, you know, I guess that's, you know, the one now, at the minute, you know, Sheila Williams won a Hugo Award for, for being an editor as well, so, anyway, this story came out in Asimov's, it's called Bring on the Rain by Josh Roseman, and it is also narrated by our very own Josh, Josh, you know, what can I say? Thank you so much. Allowing Starship Sova to do it and taking time out to narrate as well. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present Bring on the Rain, written and read by Josh Roseman. The Commodore's cabin is clean, free of the sand that seems to have settled everywhere else. The surfaces are polished, the floor spotless. 
William guesses the cabin was once a bedroom, but now the only furniture is a huge desk and three chairs, one for the Commodore and two for his guests. Bookshelves are built into the walls, crammed with as much literature as the colony has been able to collect in its travels. And it's been traveling for a long time. You're sure, Lieutenant? William has long since grown accustomed to the designation. Yes, Commodore, I'm sure. All my computer models agree. The Commodore steeples his fingers and leans back in his chair, a wooden antique worn smooth with more than a century of use. William stands and waits. His computer models have been continuously refined over the past three decades, and only once in five years has he been wrong. After several seconds of consideration, the Commodore nods. Very well. He writes on his tablet and presses the commit button. William knows that, up on the bridge, the Commodore's orders will appear on a repeater screen for the crew to act upon. You may go, Lieutenant. Yes, Commodore. William walks down the narrow corridor to the main cabin, still as well-appointed as it had been when the ship was built in the 1990s. He retrieves his sidearm from the lieutenant that runs the Commodore's personal guard, then goes out onto the aft deck. He squints in the bright sunlight, no clouds in the sky to lessen its impact, before covering his eyes with sunglasses. Lieutenant, says the officer of the deck, a greeting and an acknowledgment of William's greater rank. The OOD wears an ensign's single black bar on his shoulders. William has never approved of the military fashion in which the Commodore runs the colony and long ago he chose to ride in the middle of the pack, holding his appointed rank of lieutenant, but never actually ordering anyone around. Can you bring my car in, please? Yes, sir. The ensign blows a four-note melody on his whistle, then shouts to a couple of enlisted men riding on a skid off to port. Lieutenant Portis, disembarking. William watches as the two men work a complicated pulley system. His car, docked at the end of a long, narrow girder, begins moving closer. As he steps up onto the platform, he feels the ship's engines thrumming harder. A moment later, he's hanging on tightly as a loud horn sounds from the bridge deck. That sound is picked up by other ships, echoing outward across the broad, sand-swept plain. Behind William, more than fifty other ships feed power to their engines, and seconds later, the ground below the ship is moving at a much faster clip than the stately twenty per hour it was when William had docked his car and come aboard to see the Commodore. Oh well, it's not as if he's never done this before. William nods to the enlisted men as he reaches the bottom of the port ladder, then takes two quick steps across the skid before climbing onto the car and lowering himself through the opening in the roof. He has to angle his body uncomfortably to drop into the driver's seat. The car is still in neutral, its wheels moving as fast as the ship to which it's docked. William starts the engine and calls the OOD. I'm ready to go. Thanks for your help. Yes, Lieutenant. William sees the ensign's hand come close to the video pickup. The young man works his console, and with a clank and a lurch, the magnetic clamp disengages from the side of the car. William shifts into gear and steps down on the accelerator. The engine catches, and he turns the wheel left, veering away from the Commodore's ship. It's the only one, he notices, that still has a gleaming white hull. The rest of the ships in the Demetrius colony are rusted or discolored or battle-scarred, but somehow the Royal Admiral has stayed as clean on the outside as the inside. William drives past the colony before reversing course. It's easier to dock at his home ship if he's coming up from behind. The rear-guard gunners salute as they see his dusty beige car pass, but he doesn't acknowledge them. 
He's busy navigating the small sea of colony ships, which have accelerated to 110 per hour, keeping one eye on what's in front of him and the other on the position display. Wouldn't do to get in the way of another vehicle. But this time, there's no one else out except for him and a couple of patrols picked out in pale yellow on his screen. Up ahead, he sees the broad stern of the mighty Mississippi, its huge turbines mounted to long-disused fiberglass paddle wheels. He calls the supercargo, whose features fill his display. Ready to board, he says. The supercargo's dirty face is streaked with sweat. You're cleared for slot 12, opening main door. Got it. William shuts off the screen. In front of him, the huge panel at the aft of the mighty Mississippi eases downward, clanging as it hits the dry, cracked ground. William lines up his car, then presses hard on the accelerator. The little vehicle zips up the ramp and into the hold. Through his open roof, he hears the heavy ka-chunka-chunka of gears, pulling the door closed behind him. But he's already hitting the brakes hard, seatbelt locking, preventing inertia from throwing him through the windshield. Once he's down to ten per hour, he flicks on his lights and drives to slot twelve. As soon as he's in, the slot lowers itself thirty centimeters, effectively locking the car in place. He engages the emergency brake anyway, then shuts down the engine and steps out. Any problems? asks the supercargo. None. What about the Commodore? I heard the horns, but... William gives the man a nod. We're going, he says. The supercargo's face brightens as he smiles. Finally! You know, my youngest has never actually seen a true storm. Now he will. William knows the supercargo has three sons. He knows everyone on the mighty Mississippi. He's been living here for the past 15 years. I'm heading upstairs. Say hi to Dinah and the boys, will you? Sure thing. William claps the supercargo on the shoulder, then heads for the door. Couldn't hurt to check his models one last time. William wakes in the middle of the night, jolted out of a dream by the sound of horns. This time, it's not the deep horns that warn of a course change. This time, it's staccato bursts that signal an attack. How do they find us? Andy asks as she climbs out of bed. The scouts said we were clear for 50 kilometers. I have no idea, William says. He watches Andy pull off her nightgown and struggle into her uniform. Objectively, Andy's prettier than his wife was, though Rena's still his first love. He doesn't think Rena would mind, though, that he's sleeping with the first officer of the mighty Mississippi. Andy adjusts her jacket, then pulls her gray-streaked brown hair back into a tail. Are you up? He's awake, but he knows what she means. No, not until next week. Then get to a safe room and stay there, she orders. I don't want anything to happen to you. Why, Andy, he says, sitting up in bed and grinning. I didn't know you cared. She gives him a frustrated look. Don't be an ass. Of course I care. The look turns wry. Who'll find us water if you get killed? She blows him a kiss, then leaves the cabin, boots loud on the old wooden floors. He shakes his head, then gets up and gets dressed. Under his feet, the deck shudders as the mighty Mississippi increases speed. The turbine engines are at full bore now. It sounds like they're pushing the ship at the colony's maximum speed of 150. The mighty Mississippi can reach 175 with a good tailwind, but 150 is still more than the engineers will like. Dressed, William locks his cabin, not that anyone would steal from him, but it's an old habit, and makes his way to deck four. The all-clear message arrives four hours later, 
and William sees the sun coming over the horizon as he and the hundreds in the safe room rush out to see what's happened while they were locked away. William stands at the railing, next to one of his neighbors, looking out at the ships nearest to them. Not too bad, the man says. We're still moving, anyway. William nods. He and Don are next to the casing that holds the portside paddle wheel. There's smoke coming from a large yacht thirty meters distant, but nothing else looks out of place. He goes back into the ship, to the ladder that goes between the decks. Up on deck one, William finds Andy on the open platform aft of the bridge. Though he's not fond of being a lieutenant, having rank allows him to be present. He brushes her hand, and she flashes him a quick smile. Did we lose anyone? he asks quietly. One of the gunships was bombed, she says. The Brasilia. Sixteen dead, and we had to scuttle the ship. Two more died when their trucks were rammed. Don't know how many injured, but Royal Admiral estimates fewer than one hundred overall. William wants to touch Andy, to reassure her, and himself, but the set of her shoulders and the lines around her mouth tell him not to. How about our ship? Anything I can do? No. Her calm chimes, and she reads something off the small screen, then presses a couple of buttons and clips it back onto her belt. We took a couple of shells, but they missed the engines and the paddle wheels. She's a tough old bitch. He smiles. Andy loves the mighty Mississippi. She's passed up several chances to command newer, or faster, or stronger ships. He knows the Commodore wants her on the Council, but only ship's captains can serve. It doesn't matter to either of them, though. They're together on the mighty Mississippi, happy most of the time, and, unlike the smaller colonies they've absorbed, or the bigger ones that have trouble keeping their citizens happy, they have William and his computer models to help them find water. I'm going down to the commissary, William says after a long moment. The repair crews are going to need coffee. Andy nods but doesn't look at William. He goes down to the cargo bay, where the crews for this quadrant of the colony will come together and receive their assignments. William hears the supercargo complaining about the damage the main door will suffer from all the cars and trucks driving over it, but everyone, including the supercargo, knows that being attacked is a part of life, especially if they're searching for water. After all, William's not the only meteorologist on the continent, and if he can find a storm, so can others. The colony fights off a band of raiders in small, fast boats, and destroys half of them, but isn't bothered for the rest of the week. At night they go faster, but every other day the ships slow down, the solar collectors they plundered from a city in what used to be Arizona recharging as many batteries as possible. William still remembers when the colony laid siege to the city forcing them to give up the collectors, and threatening the families of the engineers. Come with us, and make the collectors work on our ships, or we'll kill the people you love. It hadn't been the colony's finest day, but even William had realized the necessity of alternate forms of fuel. Nomadic colonies were more likely to survive because they could go and find resources they needed, but the unfortunate trade-off was that they needed resources to be nomadic. The solar collectors solved many of their problems. Plus, William knows, with water as precious as it is now, being able to find it and get to it is safer for everyone. Bringing the colony to the water means no one gets ambushed bringing it back. In thirty years with the colony, William has been part of more than one ambush party, stealing water to survive. He much prefers using his computer models to find water and bring the colony to it. We'll be there in a couple of hours, he tells Rena. She hasn't responded in seven years. This'll be a big one, the biggest since, well, probably since I lost you.
A photograph of her smiling face looks up at him from the desk in his cabin. You'd have loved it, Rena. Lightning, torrential downpours, the works. Nothing's actually pointing in this direction. The apprentices all say it'll be near Lake Michigan. Or what's left of it, he amends mentally. There hasn't been more than sludge and debris there since the event, since the planet was blasted for two days by radiation and heat from a solar storm no scientist predicted. It had killed almost three-quarters of the population and left most surface water undrinkable. Climate change had done the rest. The hydrology crews have the collectors ready to deploy, and the container ships have been scrubbed. Finally, we'll have water that doesn't taste like metal, and we'll all get to bathe. Rena's smiling face doesn't change, even when William strokes the surface of the photograph. He remembers the rain that came in their first year together, right after they were married. They'd joined hundreds of others, stripping off their clothes and exulting in the cool water misting down from the sky. He's found the colony bigger storms since, but that type of rain. There are maybe four storms like it each year, and William usually gets them in range of one, sometimes two, makes his heart grow warm. William is an expert at finding rain, but Rena had been something special. When Rena found a storm, it was always a monster, washing away months, sometimes years, of accumulated dust and sand and dirt, filling the container ships almost to capacity, and giving everyone hope that maybe this time things will be different, that maybe this time the weather has finally changed for the better. It never does. It never will. William knows that, and deep down, so does everyone else. William's calm rings. He touches the photo again, puts it back in the little box in his top drawer before answering. Come up to the bridge. It's Andy. The Commodore needs to speak to you. Andy uses her influence to be assigned to the contact team. She's driving the white van, William seated beside her. Two security guards are in the back row of seats, and in the middle, controlling the main gun, is a wiry young man probably on his first mission. In the side-view mirror, William sees the ships of the colony grow smaller. Repeater screens show the approximate location of the other colony, and up ahead, the single vehicle the Commodore negotiated for them to meet. It's a dirty red truck, bigger than their van, but less aerodynamic. William's seen a few like it in Demetrius, mostly used for transporting groups or medium-sized cargo. It could probably hold a dozen soldiers, though the scanner reads only five heat signatures. Looks like they're holding to the agreement, he tells Andy. Then to the gunner. What do you see, Paolo? One cannon, he says, his voice through the door-mounted speakers a little quavery, definitely his first mission. And I think two submachine guns as well. Stay locked on to their gunner, Mr. Ruiz. If this turns bad, I don't want them shooting up our asses. Yes, Commander. William hears the gears of the gun moving as Paolo takes aim. I think they just want to talk, Andy, he says. He wants to reach for her hand, resting on the shifter, so invitingly close. But the two guards don't need to know they're more than shipmates, more than colleagues. She makes a derisive noise. You're our best meteorologist. You found a storm that's not supposed to be here, that there aren't any signs of. But the Jairasu are here anyway. The implications of that name are heavy in the air, especially for William. I never told the Commodore, or anyone else, that I was the only one who could find the storm, he says. And anyone who can program a computer can, with enough time, 
learn to read the data like I can. We need this storm, Lieutenant, Andy snaps. There's nothing in her voice to indicate that she was ever more than his commanding officer. That hurts, but he has to let it go. She's in command mode now. The van coasts to a stop. Andy leaves the engine running. The guards open the side doors and jump out, weapons pointed at the ground. Two soldiers, one with a shotgun, the other holding two pistols, step out of the red truck. Andy nods to William and touches his shoulder. He turns to her and sees the worry in her face, and he wants to hold her, to tell her it'll be all right. Instead, he follows her lead, disembarking from the van. It's been a long time since he's stood on ground that isn't moving. He forces himself not to sway, not to show weakness. The front doors of the truck swing open, and two more people step out. The passenger has two pistols in his belt, grips forward for a cross-draw, but it's the driver who grabs William's attention. Rena? Rena's bright blue eyes are chips of stone in her dark face. Her hair is cut close to her head, bare arms more muscular, body leaner than before. William, for his part, can barely move. He's staring at Rena's smile, at bright white teeth bared in an expression not even close to friendly. She takes in the rank stripes on his shoulders. Still a lieutenant, her words lilt voice musical. And who is this? Commander Andy Shepard, she says. You called this meeting. Why? When Rena looks to Andy, William finds himself able to breathe again. He tries not to gasp in the dry, dirty air. She's not supposed to be here. She's not supposed to be alive. Seven years ago, Rena was on patrol duty when the colony was attacked by the Jairasu a converted luxury liner with eight overweaponed gunships zipping around it in formation. Demetrius turned and ran, pursued by three Jairasu ships. One of the colony's gunships was obliterated before they made their escape. No colony William knows of, including his own, has ever been strong enough to take on the Jairasu. But it still doesn't explain how Rena survived. Three days after the battle, William joined a convoy to go back and search for survivors. No bodies were found, just scorch marks, dried blood, and the occasional scrap of clothing or desiccated flesh. But given the size of the explosion, they hadn't expected more. And William certainly hadn't expected to see her alive again, working for the most feared colony in all of North America. Lieutenant! Andy's command voice brings him back. Yet. He swallows, wishing he had some water. It's back in the van, for all the good that'll do. Yes, Commander? Miss Meredith has some data for you. Andy hands him a tablet. He shades the screen with his hand, skims the information there. Do you agree? William reads the tablet again, then offers it to Rena. I'm sorry, Commander, but I don't. Rena folds her arms. Behind her? The soldier with the shotgun takes aim at the van. The man standing at Rena's side draws his pistols. Take another look, Rena says. He shakes his head. I don't know what you want, Rena. A gunshot echoes across the heat-blasted ground. The bullet buries itself into the cracked pavement at William's feet. You will be respectful, the soldier snaps. William hands the tablet to Andy, then puts his hands behind his back. 
He carries his pistol there only because it has to be somewhere. He hopes Rena doesn't remember that. Fine, he says. Miss Meredith, please tell me what you want me to say. Her smile grows nastier, if that's possible. You want to say that my data are right? You want to say that the Demetrius colony is going to divert course 100 kilometers to the east? He catches Andy out of the corner of his eye. She gives the minutest possible nod. All right, William says. I'll recommend we move. A wise decision. Rena's soldiers point their weapons back at the ground, and William's party backs up, climbing into the van. Andy moves the shifter, and they back away. She waits for more than 200 meters to pass before she turns the wheel and points them back toward the colony. Not a word is said by anyone. The Commodore refuses to bend. We won't let them chase us off again, he says over the colony's radio network. We won't let them steal our water. William hates himself for his own pragmatism. He knows the decision is correct. He knows the Demetrius colony needs water. He knows it would be a colossal mistake to pass up a storm like this, one that could quench their thirst and their children's thirst for months. Despite the twisting fear in his stomach, six hours after the meeting with the Jairasu, with Rena, William is piloting a small, fast car with a trio of submachine guns mounted to the rear. In the passenger seat is another young gunner, a girl named Shanna, with skin even darker than Rena's, her hair intricately braided, blood-red beads woven into the rose. Her hands are steady on the gunnery controls. William's car is one of dozens, a phalanx of small vehicles, gunships, and even two cruisers bearing heavy artillery, powerful enough to seriously inconvenience even large ships. It's the biggest show of force William's ever seen by the Demetrius colony, or any other. The gunner offers William a dense, wood-colored bar. Thanks, he says. It tastes like it looks, but it'll keep his energy up. He follows it with a swallow from his canteen, a tall metal bottle with a liter of water inside. Not your first time out? She shakes her head. I'm part of the gunnery maintenance crew on the Jekyll, she says. Never been in one of these little cars but I know plenty about guns. Good. I really don't want to get killed out here. Shanna's teeth aren't as bright as Rena's, but her dark eyes shine in the light of the setting sun. Keep us out of the way of the other guys, she tells him, and I'll do the rest. William's car is on the fringes of the phalanx. He knows Andy is on the bridge of the mighty Mississippi. As one of the biggest ships in the colony, it serves as one of several communication hubs, She'll be safer there anyway. As safe as anywhere, he amends mentally. The Commodore refused to move the colony despite the Jairasu threat, Rena's threat, and the storm will come soon. Already huge puffy clouds have moved in, and William's models predict that the first of the rains will start around sunset. It's a damn waste, he says softly, gripping the wheel. The water? Yes. Shanna nods. Maybe that's their plan. What do you mean? The Jairasu are pretty much one huge ship, right? Pretty much. So they'll probably just send in their gunships and protect the main vessel. All we have to do is hold them off until the storm ends. 
William gives her a tiny, tight smile. That doesn't make me feel any better. Sorry, sir. Don't call me sir. You're the boss. The Jairasu gunships are big and fast, and to make matters worse, they're maneuverable too. It's not fair, William grumbles as he joins formation with six other cars. He feels the wheels skid on the mist-slicked ground as the cars strafe past Mars. The Jairasu gunships are all named for planets. So far, Neptune has been destroyed, a smoldering hulk taken out by the grenade-equipped vans in the fourth group. William's car is part of the sixth group. One of their number is already gone. A brief bloom of flame and then nothing but twisted metal and corpses. Overall, the Jairasu are winning. The calm chatter coming through the door speakers confirms that. Six more cars and two gunships are gone forever from Demetrius' colony, and one of the water carriers, the farmer's dell, was hulled early on and is probably still spilling the precious liquid. The guns behind William chatter, Shanna twisting her controls and raking Mars. The Jairasu ship's huge gun barks once, and an explosion forces the sixth group to scatter. Vehicles zip and twist around each other, trying to stay in formation to concentrate their fire, but there's just too much coming from the remaining five Jairasu ships. What's that? What's what? William yanks the wheel hard to the left, the tires squeal, trying to get traction. He pumps the brake, which helps a little. Bearing 245 relative, Shanna says. She adjusts her guns so she can look through the digitally augmented sight. That's not good. William spares a glance at the repeater. Shanna's thrown her gun sight feed up onto it. No, William agrees. That's not good. Orders are coming up on the repeater now. Fourth through eighth groups intercept small craft. William checks his bearing, then presses hard on the accelerator. The engine whines. The speed display ticks upward as they get closer. The approaching vehicles aren't cars. They're much smaller. Motorcycles, armed with what look like grenade launchers. The drivers are exposed, protected only by windscreens and helmets. Sixth group! It's the voice of Lieutenant Tenay, who's in command. Pick your targets. Fire at will. William aims at a cluster of three motorcycles. Shanna presses her triggers, and bullets spatter outward. Two of the bikes lose control. One of the drivers is flung into the path of a sixth-group truck, cracking its windscreen as he bounces off. But the third manages to fire his own weapon. William decelerates, twisting the wheel, then drops into reverse gear and guns the engine. The grenade explodes close enough that the heat washes over them. By the light of the blast, Shanna blows the motorcycle to bits. All around them, the Demetrius groups have the Jairasu well overmatched. The bikes are fragile, and not well balanced for fighting on wet ground. And, after Shanna dispatches two more, William takes a moment to check the tactical display. It's a trick! He reorients their course and leaves the group behind. Look! But why send out vehicles that are so easy to kill? Suicide fighters. William swerves around a destroyed car. A couple hundred years ago used when battles were fought in the air. Then, sixty years later, people strapped bombs to their bodies. Same principle. But who would sign up for that? They probably didn't know. 
William pushes the accelerator as hard as he can. His repeater shows new orders. Abandon the bikes. Lay down covering fire. Return to point nine, the original staging line. Looks like someone up there figured things out. Shanna's gun chatters. Two lights on the tactical display blink out, but up ahead are Mars and Saturn. They're shelling the Hamilton, the remaining cruiser in the battle group. But at least the Hamilton is still firing back. The sixth group forms up. Shanna drops her seat flat so she can change out her ammunition, going from standard rounds to acid slugs. She sits up straight again, teeth bared. Teach those bastards to destroy my friends, she growls. William isn't so sanguine about taking life. He knows he has to. He knows that without the storm, which is going to flood this area in little more than ninety minutes, the colony might not last much longer. It doesn't make him any happier. The gun stutters, the noise deeper, the slugs tear into the aft section of the Mars. As William shoots the car past it, he sees Shanna firing into its engine, her aim perfect. When the gun goes quiet and his ears readjust, he hears the difference in the sound of the Jairasu ship. All vehicles, concentrate fire on Mars, Tanay orders. A minute later, the gunship is destroyed. Only Jupiter and Pluto manage to escape the Demetrius battle groups, though as it departs, Pluto is struck by a huge bomb fired from the remains of the Hamilton, and it goes up in a reddish-orange gout of flame. No one cheers. The losses to the colony are too great for that. William and Shanna read the screen as they form up. Two cruisers, a water carrier, five gunships, twenty-three smaller vehicles, more than six hundred people. William feels sick. Shanna seems subdued, playing with one of her braids. We won, though. We'll get the water. I don't know if I'd call it a win, William says. He checks his heads-up display. They have enough fuel to continue patrolling for another two hours. How's your supply? We're good, she says. Plenty of ammo. That's reassuring. William doesn't feel reassured, though. Rain patters gently on the now-closed roof of the car. Shanna opens her window and cups her hand, then brings the water to her mouth. Amazing, she says. Absolutely amazing. William doesn't say anything, just drinks a little from his canteen. Something's not right. Everything he's heard about the Jairasu makes him doubt that the battle's truly over. The last colony to stand and fight against them is now a graveyard of dead ships along what used to be the banks of the Hudson River. That colony wasn't as big as Demetrius, but they weren't pushovers either, and still the Jairasu made short work of them. Still, without more than a vague feeling, William can't do anything but follow his patrol route and wait for the storm, which, at least, comes right on schedule. The wind picks up somewhat, and just after that, the pattering on the roof and windscreen becomes a downpour. William activates the wipers, but they don't help much. Between the darkness and the rain, he finds himself navigating by the tactical display. I hope the container ships are getting this. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Shanna says, it's unbelievable. William nods. I'm sure they're doing what they're supposed to. His eyes are still on the tactical display. That's odd. What? Look. He points to something on the edge of the infrared sensor's range. What do you think that is? Shanna shrugs. Probably the part of the ground that's not getting rained on. I don't think so. The storm is small, but not that small. He keys in to Lieutenant Tenet's frequency. Sir, he says, ignoring his dislike of protocol. Take a look at bearing 258 relative. Can you request they boost the scanner? In this mess, Portis, you must be nuts. Nothing works when there's this much interference. There's something out there, William says. I'm sure of it. He can picture the lieutenant shaking his head. All our firepower is deployed along that side anyway. If something's coming, we'll catch it. William closes the channel. Do you still have the acid slugs loaded? Yeah. Why? We're going to figure out what that thing is. Lou. She pauses when she sees his expression. Look, it's not our job, and if we break formation for no reason, then get out, he tells her. His hand goes to the shifter. Say the word, and I'll let you off. No questions. I'll take the blame, if there's any to be had. Shanna makes an amused sound deep in her throat. Who's going to protect your ass if I jump ship? She smiles. Let's go. William checks the tactical display, and when there's an opening, he pulls the car out of formation and aims for 258 relative. The lieutenant's voice starts calling for him over the speakers, first as if there might be something wrong, but then more angrily. Shanna turns the calm down to a low murmur, almost lost among the sounds of the storm. The lightning has started, occasional flashes punctuated by booms of thunder. The first one makes Shanna jump in her seat but she recovers. That never gets old. William spares her a small grin, but that's all he can offer. He switches from tactical to infrared sensors, watching for the surviving gunship. It's not there.
Nothing's there but a huge heat blob that worries him more with every passing second. We didn't drive them off, William says. I know that much. No one drives off the Jairasu. He focuses the infrared scanner, plenty of heat, and the telltale purple areas that indicate engine compartments. They're out there, he says, and they're moving. Then why are we still here? Call the lieutenant. William shakes his head. We can't. Look. He clicks the tuning knob on the comm unit, static on all the channels. It's a white noise field. We have them too. But if we use them, we can't communicate either. He flips to a lower frequency band. The carrier signal is mercifully clear. He presses the transmit button, then repeats the same three-letter combination over and over. Will we get a reply? No. This band is transmit only from here, but hopefully they'll get the message. Shanna puts her sights on. Move us closer. I'll try to slow them down. With that gun? Really? She nods. Just do it. We're out here. We have to do something. William swings the car out wide and comes around behind the flagship. As he gets closer, he realizes just how enormous it is and how fast it's going. Somehow, the monstrosity is moving at a steady 130 an hour, and in this weather, the smaller wheels of the car have a difficult time keeping up. But he manages to come alongside one of the gigantic tires, pushing the engine as hard as he can. Several displays are redlined by the time he gets close enough to one of the hundreds of wheels keeping the Jairasu flagship moving. Shanna takes aim. Fires. Fires again. And again, William has to back off the accelerator before the engine overheats. The car starts falling back. Its lights hit the wheel that Shanna shot. It's pitted where the chemical has eaten into it. But the ship itself hasn't slowed down at all. Shanna tosses her sights on the dashboard in front of her. He can see tears in her eyes. They're going to kill everyone, she says. They're going to destroy our ships, and no one will be able to do anything. They're heading straight into the colony's teeth. They'll at least be able to slow them down or get out of the way. You don't really believe that, do you? William doesn't. The very thought of the biggest, most powerful ship known to be roaming the Western Hemisphere, moving at this speed. They'll never see it coming. William manages to coax enough out of the engine to almost catch back up to the Jairasu before the massive liner slams into the heart of the Demetrius colony. The smaller ships are maneuverable enough to get out of the way, but the tactical display shows that the core vessels have no chance. Shanna and William watch as the lights blink out from the display. Supreme Illusion falls first then Strongman Jack, and Coburn. Two of the water carriers are next, and then William's heart stops. The mighty Mississippi is gone. The Jairasu leave long before the storm ends. By morning, it's rained itself out, and William and Shanna, who abandoned their car to join the rescue effort, are able to see the destruction. My God! God, she whispers, clutching William's hand.
My God, look at it. He can barely stand to. The water, glistening on every broken surface, will be evaporated away soon. His brain fills in the broad swath of missing ships. At least twenty are lost, probably destroyed, and there must be thousands dead. Last night the two of them tried to find the mighty Mississippi, but the big ship was completely gone. As the sun starts to rise, he sees marks on the ground heading eastward. Something huge was pulled against its will. William practically drags Shanna to an abandoned car and slams it into gear, following the direction of the scorch marks. Four kilometers away, he finds the forward half of the mighty Mississippi, her turbines sheared away. There's ruins a few hundred meters back, probably where the engine compartment blew up. William slams on the brakes, the car screeching to a halt, and jumps out. He and Shanna sprint across the already steaming ground to the broadsided, broken ship. Andy! he shouts. Andy! He sees the bridge, its canopy peeling away from the upper deck. Andy! Who's there? It's a male voice. William, is that you? It's Captain Marshall. Where's Andy? A long pause. She's trapped, the captain yells down. Call for help, quickly, before... Metal shrieks. The entire bridge pulls away from the ship and crashes to the ground. An instant later, a small explosion blows a wave of heat in William's direction. Shanna grabs him before he can run into the burning wreckage. They're dead, she says her grip vice-tight as he tries to pull away. Damn it, William, she's dead! Though he fights Shanna as she pulls him back to the car, he knows he'll never see Andy again. It takes a month for the Demetrius colony to recover. The Commodore still leads, and there are still twenty-two viable ships. The smaller vehicles have nowhere to dock anymore, but some of the hulks are cannibalized into rolling platforms, and that helps. Five water carriers are still intact, though there's little protection for them now that there's only one remaining gunship. Find us water, the Commodore orders William who again stands in the book-lined cabin, which has taken surprisingly little damage. Either that, or he told them to clean it up at the expense of others. Find us another storm, Lieutenant. Why? So the Jairasu can just take it away again? What would you have us do? Go after them? William tosses a tablet on the Commodore's desk. They warned us. Damn you, they told us exactly what they were doing, and you ignored it. We needed that water, the Commodore says, his voice quiet and deadly. And you're out of order. I'm out of order, am I? William grabs the desk and shoves it. The Commodore is knocked onto his back, stuck in his chair. William comes around and kneels beside him. How does it feel? Let me up. No, not until you learn how it felt for the people who died, because you couldn't heed a warning. He feels his throat go tight. It was like this for Andy, you know, trapped on the bridge of the mighty Mississippi, knowing she was about to die a horrible death. He rips the rank. 
from the Commodore's shoulders. I'm taking a cruiser, and as many others as want to follow, and we're going after the Jirasu. That's suicide! Maybe. William gets to his feet. But they aren't invincible. We destroyed some of their ships, and now I'm going to wipe them off the face of the planet. He permits himself a small smile. And Andy deserves better. Her and all the others, you allowed to die. The Commodore calls William's name, but he doesn't turn. He leaves the cabin, leaves the ship, and walks to the Shepherd, formerly the San Diego. Sixteen of the fastest, best-armed cars and trucks are parked near the sleek, powerful vessel. There's also a converted yacht filled with water, courtesy of some of Shanna's connections. On the Shepherd's Bridge, William takes a moment to check his calm. He already knows what's in there. Rena's message, sent in the middle of the storm. He hasn't changed his calm frequency, so it's not surprising that she was able to get him. You never came after me, Rena says, smiling sadly into the video pickup. He's listened to the message more than a dozen times. I survived. I made myself useful. I worked my way up. I fought to give Demetrius a warning, but you didn't listen. My people had no choice. The first time, William had flung the calm across the parched ground, but Rena's voice had continued speaking. I'm not sorry. We did what we had to do to survive, just like you. She pauses. Don't cross our path again. It looks, for a moment, like she's going to say something else, but the message ends there. William puts the calm away. Shanna and three young men step onto the bridge a couple of minutes later. The men take stations, and Shanna stands beside William, looking out at the Demetrius colony. We're ready, she tells him. He nods, and she orders the Shepherd colony to get underway. William is pretty sure Andy wouldn't be happy that he's on a mission to avenge her death. But he doesn't care. The Jirasu are going to pay for this. Rena is going to pay for this. Don't forget, copyright is Josh's. You know, it's in, you know, Sheila will come for you <laughs> with our little cleavers if you copy that one. So I've got a little interview with Josh. How cool is that, getting a story in Asimov's? I was, it was pretty amazing. I was, uh, I was actually at work when I got the email. So I checked my email and I just, I leaned back from the desk and just, just clapped my hands like that. And I was trying really hard not to jump up and down because, uh, I've been trying to get stories in Asimov since, uh, geez, uh, 2007. And, uh, it's a lot of work to get in there. So, I mean, I was, I was really pleased about it. I mean, like, like you say, you know what I mean? This is no mean feat. Like you say, you've been doing this since 2007, but, you know, it's Sheila Williams. She's just won a Hugo Award there for best kind of editor, short editor. And, do you know what I mean? She must, in her time, you know, a lovely person as she is, but she must have rejected so many, you know, or dashed so many hearts. You know, because she's probably seen 
every kind of scenario of a short story over a time. So, you know, now in, you know, like say Sheila's been in this kind of business a while, to get in past, you know, get in past Sheila and get accepted past Sheila, it is, it is a remarkable, you know, feat. And thank you so much for letting Starship Silver play that. Do you know what I mean? That was an amazing um, gift to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having it on. You know, an interesting thing about about Sheila Williams is that the first story that I submitted to her, I actually, before she had the uh, electronic submissions, I actually got a full-page rejection letter with just tons and tons of notes on the story and an invitation to submit it back. And so I made the changes and I sent it back and I got another full-page rejection letter and she said it almost made it in, but uh, one of the other editors found something about it that I guess didn't, that he or she didn't really care for, so they didn't get in. But I was just... I was so pleased to get such great feedback from from a from an editor like her that it, it really kind of spurred me on to write more stuff. It, it must be, you know, because honestly, I wouldn't have the patience to do that. You know what I mean? To like to to read because I know that you know the stories I'm picking are kind of have done the grade. You know what I mean? It's my job's comfortable and easy. I haven't got to go through those slush piles. I just wouldn't have the time or the energy. You know, yes, maybe for the first year. You know, what I mean, you're right. Letters out all the time, you know, apologies and all this. But, and it must be like a real boost getting rejected from Sheila Williams. Do you know what I mean? Because, like you say, she's, you know, this this woman knows her stuff and she's giving you all these kind of tips and everything like that. So, are you still, hopefully, you're, you're still writing, are you? Yeah, I'm actually um, working on a, several different things. I have a, um, a uh, book that a publisher has asked me to do a little revision on. It's uh, not a genre novel. Um, and they haven't actually contracted it or not, but I've just started working on the revisions for that. And then just a, a whole bunch of short stories that are in various stages of either being submitted or being revised or, uh, being completely rewritten. And then I actually have a genre novel, um, which I haven't even titled yet. It's only about 5,000 words in, but I've got it outlined. I just haven't had the time to do much work on it. So the big question is, Josh, have you been rejected by Sheila since then? Uh, since Bring on the Rain, yes. Um, I have another story that I sent her um, called Greener, which is um, I actually just resubmitted because I got, you know, what I what I love about submitting to Asimov's is that is that she it, and it seems like she's always got a tip for something you know something you can do to make the story better or to fit the magazine better. So I've sent the story back in and I'm just waiting to hear back on that one before I send it elsewhere. Unless you know, in which case, if she takes it, in which case, obviously, I'm not going to send it anywhere else. So is, but, uh, yeah. is Asimov's then, Josh, just out of curiosity, is this always your kind of your first port of call with a short story? You know, if it's kind of, if that's what, if it's suitable, if that's the story and that's the genre, does it go to, is Asimov's your number one bet? Or do you sometimes just kind of play the field and think, I'll send it here, I'll send it there, and who knows? Well, um, it depends, I think, on how good I think the story is. I don't only write science fiction, so some things just don't fit that magazine to begin with. But, um, Generally, I'll submit to a publication that has a really quick turnaround time, like a Clark's World or a Lightspeed, just to see, you know, if they like it. Um, and then I've sort of got a mental list of, all right, so this is the net one that takes the next longest and the next longest and so forth. Um, and uh, Asimov's is usually three to four months, which is pretty good, and it's worth it because, you know, the feedback. But I do like, you know, I'm, I'm not very patient sometimes. So I like to get the uh, the feedback as quickly as I can, and you know if I if I submit it to a Clark's World or a Lightspeed, and they give me a they give me some feedback on the story to make it better, then perhaps the next place I submit it to will like it. Hey, no. Well, tell us then how 
where, where did Bring on the Rain come from? Um, I was uh, at work a couple of years ago, um, just goofing around trying not to uh, actually do my job. And, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm really good at goofing weird. off. I always say that. Um, so I, I was just going through some uh, pictures on the Internet, and I found this picture of a giant cruise ship going down a very narrow, sort of stylized, going down a very narrow river uh, with, with green fields on either side of it. And um, I thought it was a really great image, and I wanted to write something related to that. Um, but it turns out that it was not a story about giant boats going down rivers, although it did have a giant boat. And uh, I've been around, I was around boats growing up all the time. I'm from the coast of Florida, and my grandfather had a boat. We used to go fishing or go out scuba diving off the boat. So, you know, I, I always like to incorporate boats into my stories when I can. So it's, you know, the, the giant cruise ship, the boats, and then, I don't know, maybe I had uh, maybe I'd watched Tank Girl or something because of the uh, the desert aspect of it all. And it all just sort of came together, and I sat down, and in a couple of hours, I had the first couple thousand words done. That's, I was going to say, how long did it take you to write it? You know, are you one of these, you know, like I say, this question gets asked every time. Do, can you just get these stories down, do a little quick revision, and it's, it's, it's good, it's out the door? Or is it a Ted Chang style where it's like, you know what I mean, just a horrible place to be when you're writing? Um. Once I actually get in the groove of, of actually writing stuff, um, I can usually knock out a couple of thousand words a night. But the problem is I have to be in the right headspace to do the writing. You know, I could, you know, after I get home, do the family stuff, put my daughter to bed, get downstairs, make lunch for the next day. After all the things I have to do, sometimes I'm just too tired or I'm just not motivated enough to do the writing. Um, and then I've got to, you know, I've got to get it set up. I've got to get headphones. I got to get the files open and everything. I'm, kind of one of those people who really has to have everything in place to actually do it but once i'm doing it it comes pretty quickly you know you said at the beginning of the interview as well like you were doing like some sort of review as well now i know you do reviews for escape pod an important part for you your writing or do you just like do you kind of that's you know it helps to see your works in print and you just you, you kind of main excitement is stories um i think there's an element of both. I mean, the things that I'm most, I'm always most proud of are the fiction that, that people like enough to believe that other people will like to read it. Um, I do like writing reviews. Um, I read a lot, or at least I try to. And, um, I like to, you know, reading the books, uh, reading books with more of a critical eye has sort of helped me figure out what kinds of things I might want to avoid or not avoid in my writing. Like, uh, I recently wrote a couple of reviews of the uh, Philippa Ballantyne um, order books. And one of the things that I noted in both of those is that she doesn't do info dumps, which drive me crazy in, in fantasy and science fiction novels. So, you know, reading that and seeing the techniques she uses to avoid giant dumps of information kind of helps me figure out how I want to also avoid giant dumps of information. Or if I read a book that did have them, I would know this is not something I want to do. So, I mean, I like to do the reviews just because I like to do the reviews, but I also like to be able to read these books and uh, get a little insight as to, okay, so this is something I like, so how can I do this in my style of writing? Or this is something I don't like, how can I get around doing this in my style of writing? Well, Josh, I mean, just before we kind of say bye, just, you know, there must be a ton of writers out there kind of 
you know, you're, you're on that first ladder. Any advice for them? Do you know what I mean? Just if they're getting rejected and rejected all the time, what is that, you know, to get that, that one seal? Because I think once you get that one seal, you know, at least the waters are a bit calmer and you can kind of keep your head up high and think, well, I've done that. Is there any little bit of advice you can give? Uh, mostly I would say <clears throat> always, uh, always shoot for the stars first. Always send it to the hardest market, the the biggest market first because you know the worst thing that could happen is that they say no and when if they say no when they say no go to the next one down the next one down the next one down but always when when you've got something that's done that you think is ready um always start at the top because you mean if the if the the top publication takes it then you know a you don't have anywhere else to you don't have to worry about sending it anywhere else and b you just got accepted by a top publication um but there is a lot of rejection involved and Really, the the goal is to uh, to fail upward. So if if you don't have success with a with a market, to just keep sending it on, giving it revisions, um, take the advice that the uh, that the editors of the publications give to you, and uh, see if you know maybe they just don't like the story for whatever reason. But usually they'll have some sort of piece of advice or a tip or a critique that'll help you make the story better. So don't disregard stuff like that because you know you never know. What's you know if they give you a critique, maybe the next one will like it because you took that critique to heart. Josh, you know what I mean. Like I say, I'm so pleased. You know, you, you've things are happening for you. Like I say, you're great narrator on Starship so far. You know, you've been kind of jumping in there and helping with that. And like when I found out you had a kind of story in Azimovs, it just made my day. So again, you know, well done and keep writing, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> There you go. So all you budding writers out there, there is hope. Just keep on doing it. Keep on writing. I couldn't get away with it, mate. I tried to do it a while ago. Tried to do writing a few years ago. And I did, you know, to be truthful, give myself a little bit of praise. I sold a couple of stories. Nothing big magazines, but the kind of small press scene in the UK at the time. And it's just so hard work. Do you know what I mean? Just so hard work. So Everyone who's in that kind of boat, you know what I mean? In some little way, I've got a feeling of what you're going through, but, you know, to get a sale and, like, see, someone like Sheila Williams or someone of her calibre, amazing. Right, we have the third part and the final part of The Sultan of the Clouds by Jeffrey A. Landis. This story as well is narrated by Jonathan Dans. Jonathan, again, Jonathan's done some work for Starship Show, which is amazing. Jonathan, thank you so much. And a big thank you to Jeffrey A. Landis. This was nominated for one of the Hugo Award stories this year. So it didn't win, but, you know, I think it was the Ted Chang one, like I mentioned before, that actually won that novelette. I think it was novelette, Carry, I think. <laughs> Might have been the novella one off the top of your head. So... Starship Sova and her oral... Oh, you see, where am I going with that? Oral design? Man, that was bloody three years ago, Tony. Starship Sova is very proud to present The Sultan of the Clouds, Part 3. In Part 2 of The Sultan of the Clouds by Jeffrey A. Landis, Carlos Fernando, The Sultan of the Clouds, presents Dr. Leah Hamakawa with yet another gift, this time a diamond fiber egg. Later, her assistant... David Tinkerman learns the gift is part of a Venus courting ritual. Carlos Fernando asks Dr. Hamakawa questions about her specialty. The process is used in terraforming Mars. Dr. Hamakawa is perplexed by this line of questioning, knowing that the same process on Venus 
would be catastrophic, sending all the floating cities crashing to the surface of the planet. Carlos Fernando invites Dr. Hamakawa and Tinkerman to go sky-kayaking outside the city. Just as Tinkerman is getting the hang of maneuvering his kayak, it comes apart around him, and he falls through the acidic fog of Venus's atmosphere. As he is blacking out, an enormous dark shape swoops down from above. Tinkerman wakes up to two men treating him for acid burns. He learns he is in the cargo hold of a pirate ship from one of the dissident floating cities, and that they shot his kayak from the sky. The pirates are aware of some secret plan of Carlos Fernando's, though they do not know what it is. After blindfolding Tinkerman with special goggles, they escort him back to Hypatia where he is released with the understanding that he is to contact them if he should learn anything of Carlos Fernando's plans. Back at the Singh household, Tinkerman learns of the unorthodox way in which people court each other on Venus, and that marriage is more about business than love. He also learns that Carlos Fernando is courting Dr. Hamakawa as a means of breaking with custom, but he still isn't sure why. The Sultan of the Clouds by Jeffrey A. Landis Part 3 Outside the Singh quarters in Sector Carbon, the sun was breaking the horizon as the city blew into the daylit hemisphere. I hadn't been sure whether Epiphany's offer to find me a young girl had been genuine, but it was not what I needed, and I'd refused as politely as I could manage. I had gone outside to think, or as close to outside as the floating city allowed, where all the breathable gas was inside the myriad bubbles. But what could I do? If it was a technical problem, I would be able to solve it, but this was a human problem, and that had always been my weakness. From where I stood, I could walk to the edge of the world, the transparent gas envelope that held the breathable air in and kept the carbon dioxide of the Venus atmosphere out. The sun was surrounded by a gauzy haze of thin, high cloud and encircled by a luminous golden halo with mock suns flying in formation to the left and the right. The morning sunlight slanted across the cloud tops. My eyes hurt from the direct sun. I remembered the sun goggles in my knee pocket and pulled them out. I pressed them onto my eyes and tapped on the right side until the world was a comfortable dim. Floating in the air, in capital letters barely darker than the background, were the words, Link, Ready. I turned my head, and the words shifted with my field of view, changing from dark letters to light depending on the background. A communications link was open? Certainly not a satellite relay. The glasses couldn't have enough power to punch through to orbit. Did it mean the manta was hovering in the clouds below? Hello, hello, I said, talking into the air. Testing. Testing? Nothing. Perhaps it wasn't audio. I tapped the right lens, dimmer, dimmer, dark. Then back to full transparency. Maybe the other side. I tried tapping the left eye of the goggle, and a cursor appeared in my field of view. With a little experimentation, I found that tapping allowed input in the form of Gandhi-encoded text. It seemed to be a low bitrate text only. The link power must be minuscule. But Gandhi was a standard encoding, and I tapped out, CQ, CQ. Seek you. Seek you. The link ready message changed to a light green, and in a moment, the words changed to here. Who, I tapped. Manta 7 was the reply. News? CF proposed LH, I tapped. Known, came the reply. More? No. Okay, signing out. The link ready message returned. A comm link if I needed one. But I couldn't see how it helped me any. I returned to examining the gas envelope. 
Where I stood was an enormous transparent pane, a square perhaps ten meters on an edge. I was standing near the bottom of the pane where it abutted to the adjacent sheet with a joint of very thin carbon. I pressed on it and felt it flex slightly. It couldn't be more than a millimeter thick. It would make sense to make the envelope no heavier than necessary. I tapped it with the heel of my hand and could feel it vibrate. A resonant frequency of a few hertz, I estimated. The engineering weak point would be the joint between panels. If the pane flexed enough, it would pop out from its mounting at the join. Satisfied that I had solved at least one technical conundrum, I began to contemplate what Epiphany had said. Carlos Fernando was to have married the wife of the Telios Delacroix braid. Whoever she was, she might be relieved at discovering Carlos Fernando making other plans. She could well think the arranged marriage as a trap, as he apparently did. But still, who was she, and what did she think of Carlos Fernando's new plan? The guards had made it clear that I was not to communicate with Carlos Fernando or Leah, but had no instructions forbidding access to Braid Telios Delacroix. The household seemed to be a carefully orchestrated chaos of children and adults of all ages, but now that I understood the Venus societal system a little, it made more sense. The wife of Telios Delacroix, once the wife apparent of His Excellency Carlos Fernando, turned out to be a woman only a few years older than I was, with closely cropped gray hair. I realized I had seen her before. At the banquet, she had been the woman sitting next to Carlos Fernando. She introduced herself as Miranda Telios Delacroix and introduced me to her up-husband, a stocky man perhaps sixty years old. "'We could use a young husband in this family,' he told me. "'Getting old we are, and you can't count on children. They just go off and get married themselves.' There were two girls there, who Miranda Delacroix introduced as their two children. They were quiet, attempting to disappear into the background, smiling brightly, but with their heads bowed to the ground, looking up at me through lowered eyelashes when they were brought out to be introduced. After the adult's attention had turned away from them, I noticed both of them surreptitiously studying me. A day ago, I wouldn't even have noticed. Now, either come and sit nicely and talk, or else go do your chores, Miranda told them. I'm sure the Outworlder is quite bored with your buzzing in and out. They giggled and shook their heads and then disappeared into another room, although from time to time one or the other head would silently pop out to look at me, disappearing instantly if I turned my head to look. We sat down at a low table that seemed to be made out of oak. Her husband brought in some coffee and then left us alone. The coffee was made in the Thai style, in a clear cup, in layers with thick, sweet milk. So, you are Dr. Hamakawa's friend, she said. I've heard a lot about you. Do you mind my asking, what exactly is your relationship with Dr. Hamakawa? I would like to see her, I said. She frowned. So? And I can't, she raised an eyebrow. He has these women, these bodyguards. Miranda Delacroix laughed. Ah, I see. Oh, my little Carly is just too precious for words. I can't believe he's jealous. I do think that this time he's really infatuated. She tapped on the tabletop with her fingers for a moment, and I realized that the oak tabletop was another one of the embedded computer systems. Goodness, Carly is not yet the owner of everything, and I don't see why you shouldn't see whomever you like. I've sent a message to Dr. Hamakawa that you would like to see her. Thank you. She waved her hand. It occurred to me that Carlos Fernando was about the same age as her daughters, perhaps even a classmate of theirs. They must have known him since he was a baby. It did seem a little unfair to him. If they were married, she would have all the advantage, and for a moment I understood his dilemma. Then something she had said struck me. He's not yet owner of everything, you said. I said. 
I don't understand your customs, Mrs. Delacroix. Please, enlighten me. What do you mean, yet? Well, you know that he doesn't come into his majority until he's married, she said. The picture was beginning to make sense. Carlos Fernando desperately wanted to control things, I thought, and he needed to be married to do it. And once he's married, then he comes into his inheritance, of course, she said. But since he'll be married, the braid will be in control of the fortune. You wouldn't want a 21-year-old kid in charge of the entire Nordwald Gruenbaum holdings. That would be ruinous. The first Nordwald knew that. That's why he married his son into the La Jolla braid. That's the way it's always been done. I see, I said. If Miranda Delacroix married Carlos Fernando, she, not he, would control the Nordwald Gruenbaum fortune. She had the years of experience. She knew the politics, how the system worked. He would be the child in the relationship. He would always be the child in the relationship. Miranda Delacroix had every reason to want to make sure that Leah Hamakawa didn't marry Carlos Fernando. She was my natural ally. Also, she and her husband had every reason to want to kill Leah Hamakawa. Suddenly, the guards that followed Carlos Fernando seemed somewhat less of an affectation. Just how good were the bodyguards? And then I had another thought. Had she or her husband hired the pirates to shoot down my kayak? The pirates clearly had been after Leah, not me. They had known that Leah was flying a kayak. Somebody must have been feeding them information. If it hadn't been her, then who? I looked at her with new suspicions. She was looking back at me with a steady gaze. Of course, if your Dr. Leah Hamakawa intends to accept the proposal, two of them will be starting a new braid. She would nominally be the senior, of course, but I wonder... But would she be allowed to? I interrupted. If she decided to marry Carlos Fernando, wouldn't somebody stop her? She laughed. No, I'm afraid that little Carly made his plan well. He's the child of a Grunbaum, all right. There's no legal grounds for the families to object. She may be an outworlder, but he's made an end run around all the possible objections. And you? Do you think I have choices? If he decides to ask me for advice, I'll tell him it's not a good idea. But I'm halfway tempted to just see what he does. And give up her chance to be the richest woman in the known universe. I had my doubts. Do you think you can talk her out of it, she said. Do you think you have something to offer her? As I understand it, you don't own anything. You're hired help, a gypsy of the solar system. Is there a single thing that Carly is offering her that you can match? Companionship, I said. It sounded feeble, even to me. Companionship, she echoed sarcastically. Is that all? I would have thought most outworlder men would have promised love. You are honest, at least. I'll give you that. Yes, love. I said, miserable. I'd offer her love. Love, she said. Well, how about that? Yes, that's what outworlders marry for. I've read about it. You don't seem to know, do you? This isn't about love. It's not even about sex, although there will be plenty of that, I can assure you, more than enough to turn my little Carlos inside out and make him think he's learning something about love. This is about business, Mr. Tinkerman. You don't seem to have noticed that. Not love, not sex, not family. It's business. Miranda Telios Delacroix's message had gotten through to Leah, and she called me up to her quarters. The women guards did not seem happy about this, but they had apparently been instructed to obey her direct orders, and two red-clad guards' women led me to her quarters. "'What happened to you? What happened to your face?' she said, when she saw me. I reached up and touched my face. It didn't hurt, but the acid burns had left behind red splotches and patches of peeling skin." I filled her in on the wreck of the kayak and the rescue or kidnapping by pirates. Then I told her about Carlos. Take another look at the book he gave you. I don't know where he got it, 
and I don't want to guess what it costs, but I'll say it's a sure bet it's no facsimile. Yes, of course, she said. He did tell me eventually. Don't you know it's a proposition? Yes, the egg, the book, and the rock, she said. Very traditional here. I know you like to think I have my head in the air all the time, but I do pay some attention to what's going on around me. Carly is a sweet kid. He's serious, Leah. You can't ignore him. She waved me off. I can make my own decisions, but thanks for the warnings. It's worse than that, I told her. Have you met Miranda Tilios Delacroix? Of course, she said. I think she's trying to kill you. I told her about my experience with kayaks and my suspicion that the pirates had been hired to shoot me down, thinking I was her. I believe you may be reading too much into things, Tinkerman, she said. Carly told me about the pirates. They're a small group, disaffected. They bother shipping and such from time to time, but he says that they're nothing to worry about. When he gets his inheritance, he says he will take care of them. Take care of them? How? She shrugged. He didn't say. But that was exactly what the pirates, rebels, had told me. That Carlos had a plan, and they didn't know what it was. So he has some plans he isn't telling, I said. He's been asking me about terraforming, Leah said, thinking. But it doesn't make sense to do that on Venus. I don't understand what he's thinking. He could split the carbon dioxide atmosphere into oxygen and carbon. I know he has the technology to do that. He does? Yes, I think you were there when he mentioned it. The molecular still. It's solar-powered micro-machines. But what would be the point? So he's serious. Seriously thinking about it, anyway. But it doesn't make any sense. Nearly pure oxygen at the surface, at 60 or 70 bars, that atmosphere would be even more deadly than the carbon dioxide. And it wouldn't even solve the greenhouse effect. With that thick an atmosphere, even oxygen is a greenhouse gas. You explained it to him? He already knew it. And the floating cities wouldn't float anymore. They rely on the gas inside, breathing air, being lighter than the Venusian air. Turn the Venus carbon dioxide to pure O2, the cities fall out of the sky. But? But he didn't seem to care. So terraforming would make Venus uninhabitable, and he knows it. So what's he planning? She shrugged. I don't know. I do, I said, and I think we'd better see your friend Carlos Fernando. Carlos Fernando was in his playroom. The room was immense. His family quarters were built on the edge of the upcity, right against the bubble wall, and one whole side of his playroom looked out across the cloudscape. The room was littered with stuff, sets of interlocking toy blocks with electronic modules inside that could be put together into elaborate buildings, models of spacecraft, and various lighter-than-air aircraft, no doubt vehicles used on Venus, a contraption of transparent vessels connected by tubes that seemed to be a half-completed science project, a unicycle that sat in a corner, silently balancing on its gyros. Between the toys were pieces of light, transparent furniture. I picked up a chair and it was no heavier than a feather, barely there at all. I knew what it was now, diamond fibers that had been engineered into a foamed, fractal structure. Diamond was their chief working material. It was something they could make directly out of the carbon dioxide atmosphere with no imported raw materials. They were experts in diamond, and it frightened me. When the guards brought us to the playroom, Carlos Fernando was at the end of the room, farthest from the enormous window, his back to the window and to us. He'd known we were coming, of course, but when the guards announced our arrival, he didn't turn around, but called behind him. It's okay. I'll be with them in a second. The two guards left us. He was gyrating and waving his hands in front of a large screen. On the screen, colorful spaceships flew in three-dimensional projection through the complicated maze of a city that had apparently been designed by Escher, with towers connected by bridges and buttresses. The viewpoint swooped around, chasing some of the spaceships, hiding from others. 
From time to time, bursts of red dots shot forward, blowing ships out of the sky with colorful explosions as Carlos Fernando shouted, Gotcha! and In your eye, dog! He was dancing with his whole body. Apparently the game had some kind of full motion input. As far as I could tell, he seemed to have forgotten entirely that we were there. I looked around. Sitting on a padded platform no more than two meters from where we had entered, a lion looked back at me with golden eyes. He was bigger than I was. Next to him, with her head resting on her paws, lay a lioness, and she was watching me as well, her eyes half open. Her tail twitched once, twice. The lion's mane was so huge that it must have been shampooed and blow-dried. He opened his mouth and yawned, then rolled onto his side, still watching me. They're harmless, Leah said. Bad boy in knickers. Pets. Knickers, the female, I assumed, stretched over and grabbed the male lion by the neck. She put one paw on the back of his head and began to groom his fur with her tongue. I was beginning to get a feel for just how different Carlos Fernando's life was from anything I knew. On the walls closer to where Carlos Fernando was playing his game were several other screens. The one to my left looked like it had a homework problem partially worked out. Calculus, I noted. He was doing a chain rule differentiation and had left it half completed where he'd gotten stuck or bored. Next to it was a visualization of the structure of the atmosphere of Venus. Homework? I looked at it more carefully. If it was homework, he was much more interested in atmospheric science than in math. The map was covered with notes and had half a dozen open windows with details. I stepped forward to read it more closely. The screen went black. I turned around, and Carlos Fernando was there, a petulant expression on his face. That's my stuff, he said. His voice squeaked on the word stuff. I don't want you looking at my stuff unless I ask you to, okay? He turned to Leah, and his expression changed to something I couldn't quite read. He wanted to kick me out of his room, I thought, but didn't want to make Leah angry. He wanted to keep her approval. What's he doing here? he asked her. She looked at me and raised her eyebrows. I wish I knew myself, I thought, but I was in it far enough. I had better say something. I walked over to the enormous window and looked out across the clouds. I could see another city, blue with distance, a toy balloon against the golden horizon. The environment of Venus is unique, I said, and to think, your ancestor, Udo Nordwald, put all this together. Thanks, he said. I mean, I guess I mean thanks. I'm glad you like our city. All of the cities, I said. It's a staggering accomplishment. The genius it must have taken to envision it all, to put together the first floating city, to think of this planet as a haven, a place where millions can live. Or billions. The skies are nowhere near full. Someday even trillions, maybe. Yeah, he said. Really something, I guess. Spectacular. I turned around and looked at him directly in the eye. So why do you want to destroy it? What? Leah said. Carlos Fernando had his mouth open and started to say something but then closed his mouth again. He looked down and then off to his left, and then to the right. He said, I, I, but then broke off. I know your plan, I said. Your micro-machines, they'll convert the carbon dioxide to oxygen. And when the atmosphere changes, the cities will be grounded. They won't be lighter than air, won't be able to float anymore. You know that, don't you? You want to do it deliberately. He can't, Leah said. It won't work. The carbon would... And then she broke off. Diamond, she said. He's going to turn the excess carbon into diamond. I reached over and picked up a piece of furniture, one of the foamed diamond tables. It weighed almost nothing. Nanomachinery, I said. The molecular still you mentioned. You know, somebody once said that the problem with Venus isn't that the surface is too hot. It's just fine up here where the air is thin as Earth's air. The problem is, the surface is just too darn far below sea level. But every ton of atmosphere your molecular machines convert to oxygen, 
you get a quarter ton of pure carbon, and the atmosphere is a thousand tons per square meter. I turned to Carlos Fernando, who still hadn't managed to say anything. His silence was as damning as any confession. Your machines turn that carbon into diamond fibers and build upward from the surface. You're going to build a new surface, aren't you? A completely artificial surface. A platform up to the sweet spot, 50 kilometers above the old rock surface. And the air there will be breathable. At last, Carlos found his voice. Yeah, he said. Dad came up with the machines, but the idea of using them to build a shell around the whole planet. That idea was mine. It's all mine. It's pretty smart, isn't it? Don't you think it's smart? You can't own the sky, I said, but you can own the land, can't you? You will have built the land, and all the cities are going to crash. There won't be any dissident cities, because there won't be any cities. You'll own it all. Everybody will have to come to you. Yeah, Carlos said. He was smiling now, a big, goofy grin. Sweet, isn't it? He must have seen my expression, because he said, Hey, come on! It's not like they were contributing. Those dissident cities are full of nothing but malcontents and pirates. Leah's eyes were wide. He turned to her and said, Hey, why shouldn't I? Give me one reason. They shouldn't even be here. It was all my ancestors' idea, the floating city, and they shoved in. They stole his idea, so now I'm going to shut them down. It'll be better my way. He turned back to me. Okay, look, you figured out my plan. That's fine. That's great. No problem, okay? You're smarter than I thought you were. I admit it. Now, just, I need you to promise not to tell anybody, okay? I shook my head. Oh, go away, he said. He turned back to Leah. Dr. Hamakawa, he said. He got down on one knee and, staring at the ground, said, I want you to marry me, please. Leah shook her head, but he was staring at the ground and couldn't see her. I'm sorry, Carlos, she said. I'm sorry. He was just a kid, in a room surrounded by his toys, trying to talk the adults into seeing things the way he wanted to see them. He finally looked up, his eyes filling with tears. Please? He said, I want you to. I'll give you anything. I'll give you whatever you want. You can have everything I own, all of it, the whole planet, everything. I'm sorry, Leah repeated. I'm, I'm sorry. He reached out and picked up something off the floor, a model of a spaceship, and looked at it, pretending to be suddenly interested in it. Then he put it carefully down on a table, picked up another one, and stood up, not looking at us. He sniffled and wiped his eyes with the back of his hand, apparently forgetting he had the ship model in it trying to do it casually, as if we wouldn't have noticed that he'd been crying. Okay, he said. You can't leave, you know. This guy guessed too much. The plan only works if it's a secret, so that the malcontents don't know it's coming. Don't prepare for it. You have to stay here. I'll keep you here. I'll, I don't know, something. No, I said. It's too dangerous for Leah here. Miranda already tried to hire pirates to shoot her down once when she was out in the sky kayak. We have to leave. Carlos looked up at me and with sudden sarcasm said, Miranda, you're joking. That was me who tipped off the pirates, me. I thought they'd take you away and keep you. I wish they had. And then he turned back to Leah. Please, you'll be the richest person on Venus. You'll be the richest person in the solar system. I'll give it all to you. You'll be able to do anything you want. I'm sorry, Leah repeated. It's, it's a great offer, but no. The other end of the room, Carlos's bodyguards were quietly entering. He apparently had some way to summon them, silently. The room was filling with them, and their guns were drawn, but not yet pointed. I backed toward the window, and Leah came with me. The city had rotated a little, and sunlight was now slanting in through the window. I put my sun goggles on. Do you trust me? I said quietly. Of course, Leah said. I always have. Come here. Link, ready, blinked in the corner of my field of view. 
I reached up, casually, and tapped on the side of the left lens. CQ Manta, I tapped. CQ. I put my other hand behind me, and hoping I could disguise what I was doing as long as I could, I pushed on the pain, feeling it flex out. Here, was the reply. Push, push. It was a matter of rhythm. When I found the resonant frequency of the pain, it felt right. It built up, like oscillating a rocking chair. Like sex. I reached out my left hand to hold Leah's hand and pumped harder on the glass with my right. I was putting my weight into it now, and the panel was bowing visibly with my motion. The window was making noise now, an infrasonic thrum too deep to hear, but you could feel it. On each swing, the pain of the window bowed further outward. What are you doing? Carlos shouted. Are you crazy? The bottom bowed out, and the edge of the pain separated from its frame. There was a smell of acid and sulfur. The bodyguards ran toward us, but, as I'd hoped, they were hesitant to use their guns, worried that the damaged panel might blow completely out. The window screeched and jerked, but held, fixed in place by the other joints. The way it was stuck in place left a narrow vertical slit between the window and its frame. I pulled Leah close to me and shoved myself backwards against the glass, sliding along against the bowed pane, pushing it outward to widen the opening as much as I could. As I fell, I kissed her lightly on the edge of the neck. She could have broken my grip, could have torn herself free, but she didn't. Hold your breath and squeeze your eyes shut, I whispered as we fell through the opening and into the void, and then with my last breath of air I said, I love you. She said nothing in return. She was always practical, and knew enough not to try to talk when her next breath would be acid. I love you too, I imagined her saying. With my free hand I tapped, Manta. Need pickup. Fast. And we fell. It wasn't about sex at all, I said. That's what I failed to understand. We were in the Manta, covered with slime, but basically unhurt. The pirates had accomplished their miracle, snatched us out of midair. We had information they needed, and in exchange, they would give us a ride off the planet, back where we belonged, back to the cool and the dark and the emptiness between planets. It was all about finance, keeping control of assets. Sure, it's about sex, Leah said. Don't fool yourself. We're humans. It's always about sex. Always. You think that's not a temptation? Molding a kid into just exactly what you want? Of course it's sex. Sex and control. Money? That's just the excuse they tell themselves. But you weren't tempted, I said. She looked at me long and hard. Of course I was. She sighed, and her expression was once again distant, unreadable. More than you'll ever know. There you go. That's it. That's it. She's done for another time. Jonathan, thank you. Great narration. Thank you so much. I'm going to hunt out more stories and just send a little boatload over to you. <laughs> and a big thank you to Jeffrey A. Landis for letting us do that story. Please, thank you, Jeffrey. I'll have a look. I'll put a link on the site. What am It's all giddy times here. Put a link on the site. Pop over to Jeffrey's site and everyone else's. Go and say hello to Josh. There's links there and everything like that. Come over and listen to my show with Bruce Bethke. Have a listen to how Cyberpunk kicked off and how everyone kind of congregated around that name and, and made, I guess, Cyberpunk what it's known today. So that is Starship Sofa Show 203. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.